Good evening and welcome to this uh, COVID-19 edition of the Christchurch Waco Catechesis live stream. It's very good to be with you tonight. Um, I'm starting to record these on Saturday nights because I can get them up online and have uh, Sunday to make sure that our live stream for Sunday Eucharist goes well. Um, We're currently in the midst of planning up for all of Holy Week, and so uh, I'm very excited about the plans for Holy Week. Uh, We're going to be a little more creative with Holy Week this year, and so I'm looking forward to revealing those plans to you. Uh, The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take upon our na- to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. We're continuing on in the Catechism to talk about the Lord's Prayer, and we're just about to finish the text of the Lord's Prayer and its um, uh, treatment in the Catechism. And so we finally made it to the doxology and the Amen. Uh, This is question 221 in the Catechism, and uh, you can follow along with me in To Be a Christian, an Anglican Catechism. This is, by the way, available from Crossway Publications. You can go on the Crossway website and order them. You can also find it in bookstores and uh, several other places as well. Uh, And so if you'd like to get that, uh, it's, it's there. As we continue on, the Catechism deals with the Lord's Prayer uh, from the perspective of it being a pattern and practice of prayer, and that essentially means that the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray. Um, The Lord's Prayer was given to the apostles when they asked, and this is in the Gospel of Luke and not in the Gospel of Matthew, where it's given in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Gospel of Luke, it's because the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, and it's there that he teaches them uh, the Lord's Prayer, or at least the version that we see in Luke, which is not the version that we normally pray. But the Lord's Prayer actually, as a prayer itself, teaches us to pray. It's the foundation for all Christian prayer. And so when we get to the doxology and the amen, it's a little bit different because this doxology is not actually in Holy Scripture. It's simply a traditional uh, addition to it, and it finds its way into some early uh, or somewhat early uh, biblical texts uh, that are not a part of the original canon. Um, But it's so uh, traditional that uh, it's, it's added on normally. So question 221, what is the doxology of the Lord's Prayer? The doxology often added to the Lord's Prayer is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. A doxology is a short praise or hymn giving glory to God. The Greek word doxa means simply glory. It's that word where we get the word orthodoxy. Uh, It means right glory. And at the end of a prayer, it's traditional to include what is called a doxology. And this doxology is for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And it actually includes that word glory. So in Greek texts uh, of this, it actually includes that word doxa, doxology. This doxology is short praise or hymn giving glory to God. Uh, Sometimes on Sundays we sing in church the doxology. It's to say that the Lord's Prayer begins with this familiar uh, uh, greeting, this familiar address of prayer, our Father, and it ends in glory. And that's to show us that uh, the beginning of the Christian life comes from calling upon God as our Father. 
The end of the Christian life is that of glory, to be with Jesus Christ in glory, the glory of the Father. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Question 222. What does kingdom, power, and glory mean? Mirroring the first half of the Lord's Prayer, the church rejoices that God is already reigning over all creation, working out his holy will, and hallowing his name in earth and heaven. So the first part of the Lord's Prayer, at which the church prays for the kingdom, for the kingdom of God to come, for the will of God to be done, the church then rejoices at the end that this is already happening, that God already reigns over all creation as king, that he is already working out his will, that he's already hallowing his name in earth and heaven. Now, some people might ask, well, if that's the case, then why are all these terrible things happening in the world? If that's the case, then why is it that God's will seems to be undermined in the world today? If God is hallowing his name, why is it that so many people uh, can disrespect God's name? Why is it that so many people uh, can commit acts of blasphemy? And the answer to be given is to say uh, that, that God is working this out. This is something that, is, that happens uh, uh, through history and in history that this reign of God is expanding, uh, that God's will is capturing more and more and more victory, and that his name is being proclaimed more and more and more. You remember those words of, of Paul in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth. Uh, and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of the Father. This is not something that he believes is a present reality, although it is a partial present reality, but it's something that's being worked out. It's something that takes uh, all of time. It's something actually to look forward to. When we say the Lord's Prayer, we are making this uh, uh, very true in our lives. We are saying that uh, God's kingdom, power, and glory is his in us. Question 223, why do you end the Lord's Prayer by saying amen? By saying amen, which means so be it, I declare my agreement with the prayer. I unite with the faithful, and together we pray as Jesus commanded, believing that our petitions please the Father and trusting that he will hear and answer us. This amen is a word that's used in many, many, many languages in the world, and it's in fact a, a word that uh, most of the time we don't even bother to translate because it's so old and so ancient, and it simply means so be it. When the church says amen together, we say that we agree with this prayer. It's what we want. It's what we desire. And of course, Jesus says that whenever two or three are gathered in my name, when they agree in my name, um, that, that he will be with them, that he will grant their requests. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, which is the most ancient prayer of the church, um, we can be confident that the church joins us in this amen as we pray the very prayer that Jesus called upon us and taught us to pray. We pray with all the Christians through the centuries. We not only pray with them uh, in the past, but we pray with them now because the prayer of the Lord's Prayer is an eternal prayer. It continues on in the communion of the saints, which we've talked about in previous sections. I unite with the faithful, not only those who are living, but those who are dead. And together we pray as Jesus commanded, believing that our petitions please the Father and trusting that he will hear and answer us. Jesus teaches us a way of prayer that is pleasing to the Father. 
and therefore he will hear and answer us. Now, I want to end out this section just with a bit of a comment. Some people might say, well, the Lord's Prayer certainly, yes, it's how Jesus teaches us to pray. Certainly it's good. Certainly it can be prayed. But should it be prayed so often? And I think, you know, uh, uh, clearly prayers can be prayed repetitively and to the point where, where it's just a repetition and it's just that and it's just... But I will say to you that the Lord's Prayer is a very powerful prayer. It's been understood that the Lord's Prayer stands at the center of the church's worshiping and praying life. It's been understood that the Lord's Prayer sits at the very center of the Eucharistic prayer, um, the church praying to gather the Lord's Prayer in the midst of the Eucharist. It's also essential to say, and I think this is, this is very needed, is that the Lord's Prayer is the first prayer we ever learned to pray. I mean, when I was a kid, I learned to pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, and many children have learned to pray the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that everyone knows. Um, and so, therefore, it does teach us how to pray. These are very formative prayers. Um, and as a people of common prayer, as Anglicans, uh, we learn this way of common prayer first through the Lord's Prayer. And so it is a prayer that, that, that is hard to wear out. Now, is it possible to wear it out? Well, in one sense, no. But in another sense, maybe. Uh, but that depends upon the intent of the person praying it. Um, and in that sense, I would say, if you're struggling uh, to pray the Lord's Prayer and pray it well, slow down. I say this to many people, you know, if you're struggling to pray the daily office well, slow down. If you're struggling to pray uh, basic prayers in, uh, in the evening, just slow down. Take your time. Think upon the words. Consider the words. Take time for silence as well. Um, so as we move forward in the rest of this section on the Lord's Prayer, uh, we actually move into a section of the Catechism that, uh, that is actually uh, somewhat detached from this text, the second pillar of catechesis, the Lord's Prayer. Um, it is instead to speak about a rule of prayer uh, and to teach uh, those who are, are being instructed, and you are one of those people, uh, how to pray and how to pray according to a rule. Now, this may sound very, uh, very difficult for some people to take, uh, but, but let's get into it and then I'll, um, I'll uh, explain what that word rule means more as we go forward. Question 224, what is a rule of prayer? A rule of prayer is a regular discipline by which I cultivate a life of prayer and grow to love and glorify God more fully. A rule of prayer. Now, the word rule in Latin is the word regula. It refers to a kind of um, a standard by which we can evaluate certain things. Can we, we can evaluate, uh, for instance, our believing by the rule of faith or the creed. We can also evaluate our life of prayer by the rule of prayer. And we can also evaluate our rule of living by the rule of the Ten Commandments. I would much more think that it's not just sort of like rules for uh, how to do, what to do, when to do it, but much more a way to evaluate, much more like a ruler. How do we measure our life of prayer? At the same time, I might also say that, uh, that uh, a rule is also much like a trellis in a garden or, or uh, something that you attach a plant to. I recently planted tomatoes in my front yard uh, along our, our uh, steps, and put immediately, what do you have, those, those tomato cages? Now, a tomato cage is essential because if you don't put it in a tomato cage, what will happen? 
Well, the tomatoes will grow on the ground. The plant will fall over. Um, you'll have rotted tomatoes, and you'll, you won't enjoy that very much. But if you put one of those cages on the plant, the tomatoes will grow up, and they will hang off the sides of that cage, and you'll have wonderful fruit. And it won't rot, and it won't get eaten by bugs, uh, and you'll, you'll enjoy it. What the trellis does is it shows the tomato plant which way is up. In the same way, a rule of prayer shows me which way is up. A rule of prayer, a rule of prayer is a regular discipline. And by that, we ought not say that it's normal or that no, it means that it regulates the life of prayer. It regulates us in discipline. Now, these words are terribly, they have bad connotations for modern people. Rule, discipline, oh goodness. Uh, but think about it for a moment. Uh, when, when we were students in school, if you're still a student in school, you might think, well, what, is, what does classroom discipline look like? Well, it looks like students being able to learn well. What, is, what does it look like for uh, a community to observe a rule? It means that there's uh, a way to work through conflict. There's a way to address issues that arise. Um, we are a uh, a, a, a nation and a people that live by laws and rules and ways that we that we live. Um, simply the fact that we can sit in a in a uh, we don't do that these days, but that we can sit in a large audience of people and trust that by and large most people are not going to sort of break the rules of of social engagement. They're not going to uh, uh, stand up and scream in the middle of a lecture. They're not going to uh, holler. They're not going to come in uh, uh, shouting and carrying on and and threatening the speaker. Uh, They're going to listen. They're going to listen politely. So the fact that you can uh, that you can uh, go into a, a building and and people don't uh, don't engage in in wild actions all the time uh, and therefore make everyone afraid is a part of how that works. We operate by rules all the time without even knowing it. But this rule, and this is why I use the tomato plant analogy, helps us to cultivate a life of prayer and to grow to love and glorify God more fully. Many spiritual authors have referred through the years to the life of prayer as the life of a garden, including Teresa of Avila and others. And this prayer life has to be cultivated. Um, This is a very agricultural word, but uh, it starts with putting seeds in the ground and watering those seeds and tilling the soil and working so that the word of God may grow to maturity in us. This is very much uh, appropriate to say that the, the parable of the seeds comes to mind. Um, that that um, we can't easily grow the seed of the word in our lives if there are rocks and weeds and no depth of soil. So we're working on it. What we, what we set to work on is a rule of prayer that we can follow. Um, so let's say, what are, the, what are the kind of hindrances to this? Question 225. What can hinder your regular prayers? My prayers may be hindered by many things, such as lethargy or loss, selfishness or sin, distractions or difficulties, or seasons of spiritual dryness. With God's help, a ruler of prayer strengthens me to overcome all these. 
Maybe you've tried to pray and, and, uh, and, and maybe you come to me and you say, oh, I'm really struggling with praying. I get very tired when I'm praying and I, I tend to fall asleep. And I say, well, where are you, where are you praying? And, and you might say, well, I try to pray when I'm lying in bed, uh, you know, right before I go to sleep. I say, well, there's the reason you're trying to pray while you're lying in bed. It's not going to work. Uh, you're going to fall asleep. Kneel next to the bed and pray. Um, go to a special spot in your house that's set aside for prayer and pray there. Um, what happens to the prayer life when, when loss comes in and we feel very much attacked or we feel a sense of, of mourning? Maybe we, maybe we experience a death or maybe we experience uh, a loss of job or something like that, and our prayer life suffers. Sometimes we suffer from selfishness. It's like, well, I know I, know I need to pray, but one more episode of this show that I'm binge-watching. I know that I need to pray, but, but I feel feel so weird praying since I've been doing this thing that I know I shouldn't be doing and I've been doing it constantly for the last several weeks and, and I just, I'd, I'd rather keep doing that thing than pray. I'm reminded of, of uh, St. Augustine's dictum that, you know, at the end of the day we'll either stop praying or stop sinning. We can't do both. We often suffer from distractions. We live in an age of distraction. There are distractions all over the place. Our cell phones are constant sources of distractions. We often start to pray and find it difficult. And so we say, well, maybe I'll just try again in a year or so. We also have these periods and seasons of dryness, and they're very normal to experience. Uh, But often they can be uh, defeating, and we'll quit praying. But here's the thing about a rule. With God's help, a rule of prayer strengthens me to overcome all these. Um, Zig Ziglar once said that the difference between a goal that you, uh, that you know about and a goal that you achieve is whether or not it's written down. And so one of the things I want to remind you of is that a rule of prayer has to be written down and it has to be written down by you in order to be done. So think about that. A rule of prayer, I should say, this is a, as an aside, is a very personal exercise. It's something that you should really work on with a spiritual director. Uh, and it will be an entirely unique and creative uh, exercise in your own life just to simply say, this is my rule of life. This is my rule of prayer. It, it's how I do things. So in that, we should include several things, and we ought to talk about what nurtures this fruitful life of prayer. If you think of prayer as a garden, you should think about which actions help my tomatoes to grow? Which actions help my plants to grow? So question 226, what, nur- what nurtures a fruitful life of prayer? My life of prayer is fed by the regular reading of Scripture, practice of personal prayer, and corporate worship of God. The ancient threefold rule of the church encourages weekly communion, the daily office, and private devotions to shape this way of life. And in fact, this is not only the ancient rule of life, but it is, in fact, the Anglican rule of life. One of my favorite Anglican authors, Martin Thornton, speaks of this as the rule of Anglican life, is this threefold rule. Weekly communion, the daily office, and private devotions shape this way of life. So these are really the three main areas into which the actions in our so-called garden of prayer uh, help us to cultivate these practices of prayer. Um, Some people through the years have told me that their Christian life thus far has mainly consisted in private devotion. That's great. And all I do is I just encourage them. Well, weekly communion would help you immensely. The grace of weekly communion, the grace of corporate worship of God, 
Further, the grace of the daily office to pray through Scripture with the community, with the church, uh, to pray written prayers that will help focus your private devotions. Others might say, well, I'm really good about making it to weekly communion. I'm really good at making it to church every Sunday. What I'm really not good at is a daily life of prayer. I try to pray, and it doesn't really work out very well. Usually the first thing I'll do is say, well, you should try the daily office and try to include in that some personal devotion. Try to include in that some personal prayers down the road. It's not that the personal life of prayer is suffering. It's that this daily office is not being kept, and so it's very difficult to keep that up. So these three are very important to keep in mind, and these really do form the Anglican way of life. And many people simply need to add one or two or maybe, in fact, all three. Um, If you're not yet a Christian, uh, you can begin praying the daily office and doing private devotions now. And someday, if you're baptized, you'll be able to receive communion starting immediately. That is uh, uh, often one of the best things, is when you're preparing to become a Christian, you're preparing to be baptized, and you simply pray the daily office. You start strong with uh, having this regulated uh, rule of life. Okay. Now we move on to how uh, we work through Scripture. And keep in mind that uh, Scripture is uh, a part of all three of these. Uh, There are ways of praying through Scripture, and we, of course, read Holy Scripture during uh, our celebrations of the Eucharist and communion. Uh, We pray through Holy Scripture, and we read Holy Scripture in the daily office. We also include, and you you should include, uh, Scripture in your private devotions, uh, relying upon things like like Lectio Divina, the Ignatian Method. I can talk more about those as we go forward. Question 227. How should the Holy Scriptures shape your daily life? I should hear them read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the sustaining power of God's Word I may grow in grace and hold fast to the hope given to me in Jesus Christ. If you look at this, uh, this uh, the, the notes there at the end of this answer, it says that this is taken from the Collect for the second Sunday of Advent. This is a traditional uh, prayer in the Anglican world. Uh, it was originally written by uh, Archbishop Thomas Cramer in the mid-16th century, and he believed that uh, this was the way... Uh, for a Christian to grow in grace, uh, to embrace and ever hold fast uh, uh, the hope given in Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a kind of progression that goes forward. There are five ways of reading, of, of, of uh, engaging with Holy Scripture, you might say. And uh, they are to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. This is worth memorizing this phrase, hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, uh, because it really does lay out how uh, the Christian engages in Holy Scripture. And here I might say as well, some of you have read Holy Scripture, haven't heard it so much. Uh, Maybe you have uh, marked up your Bible, uh, but have had trouble being obedient to it. Maybe uh, you are very uh, much aware of Scripture, uh, but haven't really learned it. And maybe uh, you've done all of those things, but haven't really meditated upon God's Word. So there's a way of balancing this out and also a way of increasing all of our engagement with Scripture through this way. And I should say this as well, these all factor into uh, the fruitful life of prayer through weekly communion, the daily office, and private devotions. So question 228, how should you hear the Bible? 
I should hear the Bible through regular participation in the church's worship, in which I join in reciting scripture, hear it read and prayed, and listen to its truth proclaimed. So part of this is to regularly participate in the church's worship, to hear with our ears the reading of scripture. Um, we at Christ Church have some wonderful readers for Scripture, um, you know, excepting clergy who read the gospel. Uh, on, on a normal Sunday morning, you will find this wonderful reader reading the Old Testament or reading the New Testament reading, and they're just magnificent at it. They're often uh, trained in uh, English language. They're uh, wonderful people, wonderful scholars, and they have, a, they have an ear for putting the meaning across with their voices. Um, one of my favorite things is to sit and listen to the readings at the Easter Vigil, which is coming up, and to hear the ways that people read Scripture. It makes Scripture come alive. And so to hear Scripture is important. The Reformers taught that the way that uh, faith gets in us is by hearing. In fact, uh, not only the Reformers believe that, but most of the church fathers believe that, Thomas Aquinas believed that. Uh, faith comes by hearing. We hear the Word of God. It goes through our ear and not into our brain immediately, but into the heart where it takes root. To regularly participate in the reading of Scripture is essential. Paul, in fact, reminds the church and reminds Timothy to not uh, become neglectful of the public reading of Scripture. So we are to hear Scripture read. We are also to join in reciting Scripture um, and this is something that if you have little children it's, or if you're, you yourself are trying to learn to read Scripture or hear it, um, uh, to publicly read the readings, right? So my wife and I pray morning prayer together every day, and, and we attempt to read the Scriptures in such a way as to, as to um, uh, uh, grab hold of our attention, to put the meaning across well. This is a very important practice, and I should say it's almost dead in many places in the church. You know, many churches don't even read Scripture uh, on a Sunday morning. They say, but we're, well, open in your Bibles to page such and such, and then I'm going to read it and explain it to you as we go forward. And that's not a bad thing, but it's to say that there's a really important art to reading Holy Scripture, and so it should be read. But one of the things we can do is not only teach ourselves to read Scripture out loud, but to teach our children to read Scripture out loud to learn to say all of those words that are difficult to say, to get the, the cadences down, to get the kind of language down, is really important. And that means that when we hear it, it becomes all the more impactful. It becomes all the more cap we become all the more capable in praying Holy Scripture and to listening to its truth proclaimed. Holy Scripture is not just read almost in a monotone, and we try to teach lay readers this. You know, really, read it well. <laughs> with some feeling, with some personality in it even. So that's the first thing, is to hear Scripture. And so if you're not in the, in the habit of reading Scripture out loud in your family, or maybe even alone with your friends, uh, you, or with your friends, you might try reading Scripture to each other. Maybe you're husband and wife, and, and uh, you want to go to bed reading Scripture to each other. That's a very good thing to do. But in the daily office, it happens anyway. Next. Question 229, how should you read the Bible? I should read the Bible daily following the church's set readings, in quotes there's lectionaries, or following a pattern of my own choosing. 
I should read the Bible daily. The daily reading of Holy Scripture is essential because we believe uh, with, with the Lord Jesus that man does not live by bread alone, but by the Word of God becoming living and active in our bodies, um, cutting to the very center of who we are. Um, this is uh, not only essential in forming our character, informing our virtues, but it's also essential in forming what we love, how we think, how we respond in, the, in, the, in, the, in times of difficulty, in times of trial, in times of stress. I should read the Bible daily, but how should you read it? Well, as Anglicans we teach that you should follow the church's set reading schedules or lectionaries. Um, and a lectionary is a wonderful thing because um, if we set out to read Scripture on our own, several things will happen. Um, the first, and probably the most defeating, is that we'll start off and, and we'll have this great plan. You know, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. And we start in Genesis and we chug along fairly well and we get through Noah and then we get to Abraham and then, and then we start to trail. And it's like, okay, well, I got through Joseph and the stories about Joseph. Okay, now we're in Egypt and it's the Exodus and we're reading through that. And then, oh no, it's Exodus 22. and you start to slow down. And maybe you get through Exodus, and that's fun. Um, uh, And so you you keep going. And uh, and you find that um, uh, uh, it's just very hard to do. It's very hard to work through. Well, what do you do? Well, uh, the, the great thing that the church has taught through the years is that it's very important to start to read Scripture in the sense of uh, reading it uh, uh, comprehensively, reading not only the beginning, reading the Old Testament, but reading the Gospels, reading the New Testament as well, reading the epistles. Otherwise, we sort of run out of steam. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, the other thing that, that's very helpful is to not read what we think we ought to be reading, uh, what we just sort of think, I'd like to read this and follow our whims. Um, that can create very difficult things, and we tend to overfocus on certain parts of Scripture. Who hasn't known uh, a preacher who just loves to preach on this text or that and doesn't get a very good and broad reading of Scripture? To read according to a lectionary means that we get this broad reading of Scripture. And if you're looking for this, you can find it in the back of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, It's very easy to follow in the new 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Uh, It's laid out by calendar date rather than uh, following the Christian year, which, which, you know, caused some grumbling at certain points. But but I'm I'm fully convinced that it's the right way to go because it's much easier to follow. You don't have to find out, well, what what proper is it this week? Well, you don't have to figure that out. You just say, well, it's March 25th. It's March 28th, and here we are, and it's just right on this page. Um, that's a really good way to do it. Okay, now you can follow, and we say this clearly, or following a pattern of my own choosing. But I should say this very strongly. You should start with a lectionary, and only if you've exhausted the lectionary, which, you know, I'm 40 years old. I've been praying through the lectionary for more than half my life, and I'm, I haven't exhausted it. Um, I haven't become tired of it. I haven't thought, oh gosh, this is the 40th time. No, I haven't thought that at all. But if you do have a pattern of your own choosing, uh, it's important to say that it should, first of all, be a pattern and not scattershot. It's also important to say uh, that this is also something you should work on with a spiritual director, and we'll talk about spiritual direction in the coming weeks. Question 230. How should you mark passages of Scripture? I should study the Bible attentively, noting key verses and themes, as well as connections between passages in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, 
I should study on my own with other and with other Christians, using trustworthy commentaries and other resources to grasp the full meaning of God's word. Let's break this down a little bit about Mark. Uh, Mark, the first, uh, the first uh, connotation of that might be, oh, that means going through my Bible with a pen and a highlighter and maybe a pencil and drawing pretty pictures in the pages and all this. Uh, well, no, that's not actually what's being said. I think for Thomas Kramer, the idea that somebody would look through a Bible and, and mark it up with a pen and paper would horrify him, as it would have horrified just about every Christian up until about 100 years ago, maybe less. Um, now, it's not a bad thing to mark up the Bible. Um, we have so many of them. Uh, but but back, in, back in the days when, and in Kramer's day, Bibles were very rare. They, it was hard to get a Bible in even every parish church. In fact, in many places, they were chained to uh, the reading desk so that no one would steal them. Mark means instead that I should read the Scriptures attentively, but I would also add to this that we ought to read Scripture obediently. Um, attentively and obediently. We should seek to amend our lives as we read Scripture. We should say, well, my life doesn't seem to, to, uh, to resonate with this. My life doesn't seem to mirror this. My life doesn't seem to uphold this. And then to seek uh, with, with the Lord repentance in prayer. To say, you know, Lord, I read this today. Help me to repent of that sin. We should also note the key verses. There are many key verses throughout Scripture. They're not a kind of, uh, I don't know, we would ever say this about a scriptural verse, but they would be a throwaway verse, but, but that it's just a very key verse. We should note them. We should say, oh, you know, I remember that one. We should catch the themes. Um, very often what will happen as you read a text is that you'll say, oh, there was so much about this in that text. So much about, let's say, hope, for instance. Um, it really spoke deeply. And we should also note the connections between the Old and New Testaments. In the earlier uh, parts of the Catechism last fall, uh, we spoke of how um, the, uh, Augustine once said uh, that the, the, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed, about the, uh, this constant interchange between the Old and New Testaments, the Old Testament setting forth the new, or foreshadowing, or indeed being a type for the new, and the New Testament fulfilling the old. Um, these are really important things, and they happen all the time. We might read a text in the, in the Old Testament and think, you know, that, that, that reminds me to think about uh, 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 this thing that happens in the New Testament. So, for instance, tomorrow morning we're going to read uh, that wonderful scene from Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones, and, and our minds should immediately go uh, to the Christian teaching on the resurrection of the dead, or even just the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we anticipate celebrating in two weeks. We are anticipating this day of resurrection, which the Old Testament prophets merely foreshadowed, and which this vision to Ezekiel shows us. Um, we should also study on our own and with other Christians. So if you're a part of a Bible study, the catechism is saying, stick with your, stick with your Bible study. This is really important. Um, I'm aware of uh, our friends, uh, the Kramers, and their work in the Middle East. Uh, and one of the things that they're completely consumed with, and I, I think it's a wonderful thing, is, is this thing called Discovery Bible Study, in which uh, um, uh, people are discovering for themselves um, uh, the truth of Holy Scripture. 
And so it's something that I want to commend to you is to read Holy Scripture with a group um, and also to, on occasion, use trustworthy commentaries. Um, there are many good commentaries. I have a library full of them. I rely on them uh, for preaching through Scripture. It helps me immensely. Um, but I also want to say that one of the things you should do is just just step away from the academic study for a moment. Sometimes it can get rather bogged down. Uh, but to really pray through Holy Scripture, that's the purpose of this section in the Catechism, is to learn to pray through Holy Scripture attentively. Um, there are other resources which can be very helpful, uh, such as sermons that you may have listened to, or that you may listen to, uh, and, and also uh, certain guides as well. Um, I'm always happy to recommend certain things like that to people uh, who should ask. Now the fourth part of this, so, we've been, so far we've gotten hear, read, mark, and now we speak about learning Holy Scripture. How should you learn the Bible? I should seek to know the whole sweep of Scripture and to memorize key passages for my own spiritual growth and for sharing with others. I should seek to know the whole sweep of Scripture. Um, when I was preparing to go to seminary, someone sort of said, you know, you really need to give an accounting of the whole story of Scripture. Can you do that? And I said, I can try. And I think I got basically to the people of Israel moving into the land of Israel. And maybe I said something about David and the kings. But past that, I was a little foggy. And then it was basically like, oh, and then Jesus shows up. Well, no, there's so much more in the history to be, uh, to be examined, to be known, and uh, to know the whole sweep of Scripture actually helps us to understand the individual portions. Something like reading a great novel. Um, if you don't know the overarching narrative, you can't see how each part of the narrative fits into the other parts. So that's an important thing, is to know the whole sweep of Scripture. And there's some very helpful things that I can uh, 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 refer you to on that. Um, uh, sometimes in, uh, in catechesis, I've decided to do, we're going to do a, a four-part series on just the whole story of Scripture and, and tell the story. Um, Father Matthew, in his, in his Bible study, has been doing this very thing. Now, it's on hiatus for a while because of the coronavirus, but uh, it's a very, very important thing to know the story of Scripture from beginning to end. Augustine once said that, uh, that, that, that the teaching of a new Christian is complete when the whole story has been told from, uh, from creation up to the present time. So it's not even just about a matter of finishing up with the Acts of the Apostles or with, uh, with uh, the writings of Paul, but you have to kind of continue on. Well, how did we get here? It's one of the exciting things about uh, studying with studying church history with the Brazos Fellows is that we study Holy Scripture, and we not only study Holy Scripture, but we study the story of God's people in the church uh, throughout the last 2,000 years. In addition to that, it's important to start to memorize biblical text. It's one of the great things that you should be doing during Lent is to memorize a text, maybe memorize a whole book, maybe memorize a few uh, key passages. I know there are some people at Christ Church that are memorizing uh, the whole, or trying to memorize the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, I've at times memorized whole uh, New Testament texts. I've at times memorized made large chunks of uh, various texts. Um, and one of the things that's been most helpful to me has been uh, the work of an organization called Navigators. When I was in college, I was uh, among the Navigators, and uh, they would they would put out these um, these memory cards, and they still do. Uh, they're wonderful things, and you can you can uh, you have the the text on one side, and you've got the 
the uh, the reference on the other, and you just sort of work through it, and you memorize it, and it's got little keywords on it, and they work very, very, very well. And I've known people that have kept uh, a stack of maybe 30 of them in their pocket for their whole life, and whenever they get bored, they just sort of pull the packet out and just start flipping through and saying, well, do I memorize it? And you flip it over, it kind of like flashcards. It works very well. Um, but one of the ways that Anglicans memorize key passages of Scripture is through the praying of the daily office. So a great example would be in, um, in uh, two weeks, it's going to be Easter, and we'll start to pray the Pascha Nostrum, and it's, it's a stringing together of four texts from the New Testament that concern the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and what happens is that over the 50 days of praying uh, through the daily office and morning prayer, you memorize those four passages of uh, teaching in the New Testament about the resurrection. And lo and behold, it's an amazing thing. So you can actually memorize Scripture by praying Scripture. Um, and this also means that when we're speaking with someone, or you, know, you may notice this when I do catechesis, um, I've got all of this treasury of Scripture in my mind so that I can uh, share it with you. Um, one last thing to just sort of get through here is uh, that it was said of the great church father Augustine that he spoke Scripture. When we have learned Scripture, almost like a language, we begin to speak in the language of Holy Scripture. And this is a very important thing I can uh, very often tell uh, when uh, a Christian preacher is well-learned in Scripture uh, because they speak Scripture when they don't really know Scripture, when it's just sort of like, oh, I know a few things um, here and there, um, they, they tend to go upon their own experience. They tend to uh, become, uh, how should I put this, moralistic in one sense, or just sort of like spouting some truisms. Well, you can always tell a preacher who really has learned Holy Scripture because their whole preaching is shot through with Scripture. And they're under its command and they're in obedience to it. Okay, lastly, well, I should say this as well. Um, if we look at what uh, Paul writes to Timothy, this is, Scripture is, is useful um, in equipping uh, the Christian. Um, so we become equipped by learning Scripture. Question 232, how should you inwardly, inwardly digest Scripture? I should meditate on Scripture and let it shape my thoughts and prayers. As I absorb Scripture, it deepens my knowledge of God, becomes the lens through which I understand my life and the world around me, and guides my attitudes and actions. Cranmer, in this uh, wonderful turn of phrase, inwardly digest, is talking almost like eating Scripture. And you might find it kind of funny, but, um, but some of the prophets actually ate their own words. Um, and, and, uh, and so to meditate on Holy Scripture means that we, we, we inwardly digest it. Um, and I'd say to inwardly digest means that we meditate on Holy Scripture. Now, for some of you, meditation may have a fairly negative connotation, something more like uh, reciting uh, various, uh, what, what might it be, um, mantras and, uh, and trying to empty your mind. That's not the point of meditating on Holy Scripture. To meditate on Holy Scripture means that we center ourselves on the words of Scripture and we let Scripture invade our lives to come into our thoughts, to shape our thoughts, to shape our prayers. It's not a matter of emptying the mind so much as it is with filling it with Scripture. Um, and this is one where, where the Psalms are especially important. It's one where, uh, where, um, where the, the, the words of Jesus are very important, the parables are very important. Um, they all come in and they, they begin to shape how we think, how we pray. 
I love how the, how the catechism put the, puts this, as I absorb Scripture, almost like a sponge absorbs water or a towel absorbs water. We absorb Scripture. What happens when uh, a towel absorbs water? Well, you know it becomes very heavy. One of the ways in which we can build a gravity in the Christian life is to meditate upon the words of Holy Scripture. This deepens our knowledge of God. That should, show, that should be very clear. It also becomes the lens through which I understand my life and the world around me uh, and how much it guides my attitudes and my actions. What the regular meditating Holy Scripture actually gives us is uh, it builds in us virtue. Um, If our minds are shaped by uh, conventional wisdom, quote-unquote, or or by what we see on on TV or social media or whatever it might be, or listen to the radio, uh, our minds become filled with that language. Um, It's amazing always to hear a a teenager speak, and maybe some of you are in that position, um, uh, hearing your own teenager speak or hearing... uh, Uh, potentially other friends speak, but they just absorb language and they start to use these uh, various forms of slang. For the Christian, when you meditate upon the Holy Scripture, you start to use the way that Scripture speaks about various things, about speaks to the truth of God, uh, and you start to absorb it, and then you start to speak almost as if uh, you are uh, speaking Scripture. And in a sense, you really are. Um, I remember that uh, several years ago, um, uh, I knew of a group of students that were um, regular uh, sort of letter, they were in a letter writing exchange with some uh, Christians in India. And these Christians uh, had very few books, but they did have Bibles. And uh, their knowledge of English was actually uh, drawn directly from Scripture. And they had taken English as a second, second language uh, classes using the Bible to shape that. That happens in many places in the world still. Um, And so the way that they wrote letters actually sounded like a letter of Paul. If you you didn't know the New Testament, you'd only heard a few letters of Paul read, you might say, is this like a Pauline letter? Uh, If not for references to uh, current events or uh, past meetings or things like that, uh, it would would have been unable to tell. Um, It was just so biblically oriented in that way. Um, And this is actually something that we should aspire to and actually work towards in prayer. Well, how does this happen? Well, I think in practical terms, what what happens first is you start to uh, go at this with these three parts of the rule of life, and you start to meditate upon Scripture within those. Well, and I'll just give it in very broad strokes. The first is that as you uh, begin to engage with the Sunday readings and weekly communion, or maybe you come on Wednesdays to our uh, weekly service when we're not under the threat of a pandemic, um, to really focus in and start to uh, uh, do things like close your eyes. Stop noticing what uh, she's wearing or what he's doing or the guy picking his nose three, four, three pews forward, uh, but simply close your eyes and listen intently. Um, listen with your whole self. Um, listen to the preaching in the same way. Um, this is a wonderful way to start to meditate upon Scripture, to start to really learn Scripture, to start to do all those things that Kramer speaks about uh, in terms of communion. 
Um, maybe you uh, are often struggling with a child, perhaps, in the midst of the liturgy. Maybe you are uh, a very distracted person in general. Uh, one of the things you can do is look in the back of your prayer book and look up the readings in advance of a Sunday service. I know that sounds like a very radical idea, but I would encourage you in it. Uh, many people have told me through the years that they do this. In fact, I was a part of a men's Bible study that looked at the coming readings for a Sunday uh, on Friday morning. They would read those readings, and then they would have a Bible study on those readings uh, during that. Um, when it comes to the daily office, one of the things that, that you might consider doing is you pray through the daily office, and I mean pray through the daily office. Um, uh, many people can get the impression that the prayers start in the middle of the daily office after the readings. Well, that's not true. Uh, the whole thing is meant to be prayerful, to prayerfully read Holy Scripture, to prayerfully hear Holy Scripture read. Um, and it might just be that you, that, you, that you shut out some distractions that you turn off the TV, that you, uh, you, you really quiet your mind, that you quiet your heart, that you pray for God and you say, Lord, you, would you help me to concentrate? Would you help me to pray? Would you help me to be obedient? Would you help me to, to surrender myself to your word as we read Holy Scripture in this moment? And that can be very important. Um, when it comes to personal devotion, one of the things that I think you absolutely should be doing is reading some scripture on your own, not according to a lectionary um, or really anything like that, but just sort of reading um, and doing what's called Lectio Divina, in which we read scripture and we just look at the sense and then we, then we roll it over in our mind over and over and over again and we start to really let it speak to us. This can be a very important thing. Um, St. Ignatius of Loyola also developed um, what's called the Ignatian method of prayer in which you insert yourself into, uh, for instance, a gospel story or a parable. And you ask Jesus at some point in this exercise um, questions. You start to say, what did you think when you saw that? <laughs> you start to say, what, what would you say about me in the midst of this thing that I've just read. Um, to let Scripture, in a sense, judge us is very important. Um, so I offer all that to you. Um, in, the, uh, in next week's session, uh, we're going to be spending some time uh, on thinking about, um, let me flip to it here quickly, um, different ways to pray, both, uh, both uh, praise, petition, intercession, confession, um, written prayers, things like that, corporate prayers. We're going to talk about liturgy. We're going to talk about a rule of life. Um, all of that will happen this coming Sunday in the live-streamed, uh, well, actually, it'll come this coming Saturday night in the live-streamed edition of this catechesis class. And we will actually take a break uh, for, uh, for the Triduum, those three days of Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. Saturday, and we'll pick back up the following, uh, well, two weeks later, in fact, uh, well, three weeks really later, uh, because uh, um, we'll be hosting a wedding here uh, on that Saturday night. So we may be able to do some catechesis. The bishop is supposed to visit the next day, but I haven't quite figured that out. Uh, but maybe I can just record it at some other time. Uh, that's the, the glory of this, this format. So um, may Almighty God bless you this day in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.